0: Now if you're looking for something else to do if you happen to be visiting the capital you might consider a trip up to Glasnevin to the National Botanic Gardens of Ireland. The director is Dr Matthew Jebb from where he joins us now. Hello Matthew, how are you today? Hello Derek, very well, thank you. So what's going on at the National Botanic Gardens in September? Well I think we all know that there is a tremendous drought
1: that has taken its grip and although we've had a bit of rain in the past week or two it is still completely insufficient. So Aina was saying that Many of the hedgerows are filled with fruits developing and so on. But actually, a lot of trees are looking very autumnal. Their leaves have gone yellow, red, and that is the effect of the drought, almost hurrying up their autumnal leaf fall.
2: That's right, Matthew. I'm noticing particularly the horse chestnut. That seems to be always one of the first ones to turn, but it's already turned. It's already gone very bedraggled looking, I have to say.
1: Yeah, and a lot of these trees, of course, are, are waiting on the shorter day lengths. As the days shorten, especially when we get to the equinox, the autumnal equinox, you know, then trees will start to shed their leaves faster and faster. But the drought is just as sort of upsetting to a tree. And it's, it's a sensible strategy that these plants have got. They're shedding their leaves because they're not going to lose so much water each day because water is now in short supply in the soil.
2: Yes, well, it's a natural reaction to this, to take in your chlorophyll, change your colours. And then, of course, if we were to get cold weather, we were to get frost, that also adds to the colour of the leaves as well. So the colour of the leaves are a great indicator of changing environmental conditions, aren't they? stress
1: yeah is is a great cause of um, browning up and and it's it, like i say it's a it's a natural process of shedding surplus leaves but once it happens to our lawn grasses you know so that our, our lawns and meadows go so brown this is really goes against the historical appellation of ireland being the Emerald Isle, because it is and was unusual for us to have summer droughts such that our our meadows and lawns went brown. But unfortunately, it's become the norm now. Matthew, how long could a tree last for without any water? Oh, very short time. And one of the extraordinary facts is that a tree that you might think you get to the end of the year, next spring it puts out leaves and think, oh, thank goodness it didn't succumb to the drought. But actually the damage has been done. And what researchers have found in, in Britain was that trees that suffered a major drought Three years earlier, the number of tree mortalities follows behind a drought by three years. So there's a three year lag for a tree that is really mortally wounded by drought and its final death. So that is something that very few people had spotted historically, but now we realize it's a sort of truth that a tree that is damaged by a drought is almost in terminal decline at that point. So it is a very sort of worrying fact about trees. And we can see that we in the Botanic Gardens have lost a number of birch trees in the last 10 or 15 years. And that we have put down to essentially the thinner soils in our far grounds where we've got a big birch collection. And actually Dublin is too dry to grow birch trees now.
0: What's the Latin name? Loris nobilis, am I right? The laurel tree, the bay tree? Yes. Well, yep. now, I had one of those in my garden for a couple of years and it really looked like it was <laughs> dead. And I just said to my brother-in-law, would you like to take it and see if you can do anything with it? And he took it and he planted it in his garden. Now, I live in Kilmacud, he lived in Bray. Yep, and yep. it's come back to life. No, that's... Uh, and laurel lot of trees you know, like a birch tree, you can
1: actually chop them off at ground level and next year up come all these little sprouts. And there's an amazing ability of plants to regenerate themselves. But other trees do not have that capacity. So it, it varies a lot across the, the plant world. Trees that you can, uh, what we call coppice, you cut them down and they produce little narrow branches and you can harvest regularly nice sort of uh, poles of a, a hazel tree. A birch uh, scrub for making besom brooms out of. Um, it, it's a a feature of um, sort of woodland craft, if you like, that to to monopolise plants into the way they operate efficiently. Ash trees, another one. You chop
0: them down, and they come back by these coppice shoots. Well, I dug it up, roots and all, and yep. brought it out to him, and it worked. I mean, it came back. Yes. I can't. Yeah. Actually, I'm actually taken aback by the fact that this thing, which really looked dead, all the leaves were brown, literally, all year round, because, yep. you know, yep. it's an evergreen, brought it out to Bray in the car, in a plastic bag, with its roots, with some soil, and he did his magic on it, and it came back wait, to wait, wait. Lazarus, yes. not laurels. Lazarus, it should be called. Anyway, what's this about California's trees dying and might not uh, be coming back?
1: I mean one of the scary things is you know that entire west coast of America has seen this annual drop in its rainfall. So they have experienced a sequence of incredible droughts in California. And to give you an idea of the scale of it, in 2020, four and a half million acres of forests burnt in the, the Sierras, the big mountain range there, and across the whole of California. The scale of that destruction is a fifth the area of Ireland. So one-fifth the area of Ireland burning in one year. And they can see now that with one drought after another, a forest fire season following on uh, straight after the previous year, there has been an 8 or 9% decline in forest cover now in the mountains of California. So yeah, they, they hold out little hope for the survival of some of these forested areas.
0: Another story you're looking at this week, Matthew, plant study hints evolution may be predictable. Yes, that's a very interesting
1: article that was published. And this researcher, Donahue, who works in Yale, 40 years ago, he started studying a group of shrubs called viburnums. And we, and we grow them in our garden. We also have a wild species, viburnum opulus, that grows here in Ireland. He studied them in Central American mountains, Mexico and, and further south. And he discovered in his research 40 years ago that Every mountain, there were some species with big, hairy leaves and some species with very smooth leaves. So he thought, right, well, obviously it comes in these forms and they've reached these different mountain tops because it doesn't grow in the forest around, the tropical forest below. It only grows in the highland forest, so it's up in the montane forest. So they're like little islands, vegetation islands across the whole of Central America. But more recent work that he's also been involved with, they've used DNA to see, well, what has actually happened historically. And we can use DNA to build an evolutionary tree, like a family tree of where all these species came from. And remarkably, what they have found is that on each mountain, some of these viburnum species have evolved into big hairy leaves and some into smooth leaves. So it's as though they have repeated this evolutionary pattern, and we call it parallel evolution. It's got nothing to do with the hairy leaves on another mountain, it has evolved all by itself on that mountain. So now suddenly they realize that. It is as though, you know, the viburnums have reached a new mountain, and some of them evolve into big hairy leaves, and some into small smooth leaves. And these are two strategies to deal with high light levels. You put a lot of hairs on your leaf to shade your leaf, and the small leaf keeps cool because it has a the surface or the edge of the leaf is close to the entire surface, so it doesn't overheat in the sun. So what this reveals is that actually there are very limited evolutionary stories that, that you can fall into as a plant. And this is precisely what the viburnum has done. And one of the biggest uh, evolutionary sort of parallels like this is palmate leaves. If you hold your fingers out on one hand, you can see the pattern of a maple leaf or a sycamore leaf. And if you go across the forests of North America, you can find that this is repeated in one family of trees after another. The the sweet gums, liquid amber, the maples, uh, magnolia trees, they all conform to this same pattern. Now, we don't really know why that is, but it is very clear that evolving Hand-shaped leaves has been a sort of speciality of these northern temperate forests of North America. And a very recent paper suggests that actually if a, if a caterpillar eats across the vein, that your, the central vein of a leaf which carries water into the leaf and brings nutrients out of the leaf, it causes a lot of damage because it's like eating through the, the motorway of, of food and uh, water going to and from a city. But of course, if you're a palmate leaf, you've got lots of backups. So you can use an alternate route for the water coming into the leaf and the food leaving it. So a certain amount of predation on these leaves means that palmate leaves are very successful in evolutionary terms. So they seem to have evolved repeatedly in different plant families. So it is just once again a fascinating glimpse of how evolution works, how natural selection builds this fantastic biodiversity all around us. Matthew, you raise all kinds of interesting questions. I have in my head the idea from way back, I picked it up somewhere, that... Plants, uh, or trees particularly, are very different from animals in that animals in adversity tend to do less well. They don't live as long. But uh, trees, the ones that really live a long time, those that are pollarded or coppiced, they live much longer than the normal ones. So it seems to me I've got this idea that adversity is good. Well, not good, but it benefits the tree. Trees are able for it in a way that animals are not. Is this actually false? Well, something very peculiar has happened in the evolution of plants and animals. This division happened way back in history, very early on in the evolution of life on the planet. If you're a plant, you're stuck to your roots, so you can't move. And you, you also, if you drop your acorn seed, it's going to germinate wherever it lands. An animal, on the other hand, hatches from its egg and it says, oh, it's a bit dry here, and it can run to a damper spot. So animals can actually move and find the best place to live plants have got this problem that they do not know where their seeds are going to land. So firstly, they produce a lot of seeds, um, but even then, you know, the the seeds of a a hawthorn tree might land in the middle of the woods, they might land on the edge of a river, up and on a mountain, uh, in a sandy uh, area or a very uh, damp, loam-rich spot, and what we now know about the DNA of plants, the genes of plants, is you will re- all recall the excitement of the human genome project when they discovered human beings had a you know a certain set of genes. Um, the entire sequence of our DNA was worked out, and. Geneticists were amazed to discover a human being only needs 20,000 genes to, to build and construct and, and run you know, an adult human body. In the intervening years, people have worked on insects, worms and a range of plants. And they discovered plants have got far more genes. So a poplar tree has something like uh, 45,000 genes. So twice as many genes as, as you and I. And you would say, wow, why has that tree got double the genetic ability of a human being. And it's very simple, a plant. It's just got stems and leaves and roots and, and flowers. So it's less complicated than an animal body. And the answer seems to be that plants have got this enormous pack of genetic abilities. So depending on where they land, they can essentially switch on a different set of genes. And so a baby poplar tree can live in a tiny little dry pocket of soil or a big wet swamp by using different genes. So A bit of a lengthy explanation, but what it tells you is, plants have got this ability to cope with fantastic stress and problems thrown at them because they can switch on a new set of genes, and animals have got a smaller deck of cards, if you like. So they have less ability to play themselves out of a a difficult corner. So I think that is probably the explanation of why plants thrive under such a a range of conditions and and animals really need very specific habitat.
0: And then why are we always told if you buy plants or shrubs or trees that it does better in this type of soil. If you're saying that they can adapt, why in the garden centres do they tell us the opposite? No, you're you're right,
1: they do, and and that is correct. You know, for example, a foxglove can only live on acidic soils. If you plant them in limey soils, soils which have got uh, limestone in them, They will not prosper at all. And likewise, a cowslip loves calcareous grasslands uh, all over the west of Ireland, whereas on the acidic soils in the Midlands, cowslips do not thrive. So you're right, plants need certain habitats and lime is one of the biggest things. You know, heather plants have to have acidic soil, so do camellias, Um, but other plants are fairly adaptable. So within reason, that that deck of cards means, you know, plants cannot live everywhere. They are confined usually to major types, but they can cope with a a drier or a wetter spot in that particular soil type.
2: Therefore, Matthew, what you're saying is that a, something like a poplar tree that has in its pack 45,000 genes is going to be able to cope with climate change and changing environment because of having this resource. I mean, any particular poplar tree obviously will be growing wherever it is, but the seeds of it have this ability to switch on other genes if they land in a place where um, the environment is somewhat different. So therefore, Climate change then is not affecting uh, trees as much as, as, as others. And yet you talk about North America, where we are talking about these giant trees who are not going to be able to survive. So is there some kind of a contradiction there between one and the other?
1: You know, one of the, the great things that nature has never faced before is the scale of Homo sapiens' uh, technological ability to trash vegetation types. So the, the change in climate in California trees will survive fine until that forest fire goes through. And then we realise actually now the habitat has changed so much that forest is finding it very difficult to regenerate onto bare soil. So I think we can look around Ireland and we can look at the oak forests of Killarney, for example. They're robust because they they have built their own environment. that. Humidity level, the the soil water levels inside the woodland is fine. But once we go in and we allow rhododendrons to take over or we cut down a lot of forest, now suddenly... The climate has shifted so much that these wretched plants cannot re-establish themselves. They can't essentially go through the natural succession, which would take 100 or 200 years, really, to restore proper woodland again. So, yes and no. I, I think the contradiction is in the fact that we, we sometimes talk about natural ecosystems, but, but really, you know, the, the the handprint of humanity tends to be rather severe on what plants can then do. So whilst plants can survive and they can struggle on under tremendous adversity, they're not living optimally. And what all species, animal and plant need, is a big enough population for natural selection to operate on in order for them to evolve, to cope with changing climate. So the speed at which it's happening now, coupled with the decline in population numbers, these two um, factors, you know, unfortunately, almost bolster one another in their detrimental effects on plants.
0: Well, speaking of climate change and global warming, there's another bit of research which is suggesting that disease-causing fungi will now thrive. Yeah. Now,
1: this is a fascinating world that a lot of people are not aware of, that if we think about what a plant is, plant cells are like soggy cardboard boxes with balloons inside them. And that is how a plant body exists. So a a leaf or a stem consists of this cell wall of cellulose, which is outside the living cells. It's very unlike an animal where all the animal cells butt up against one another, plants have got this cellulose wall between each living cell. And in that wet cellulose live tiny fungi and even bacteria. So there are bacteria and fungi, almost yeast-like fungi, and also fungi producing little hyphae. But they are living in this wet set of cellulose outside the plant cells. And so we can take a plant and we can use DNA to work out that there can be anything between 20 and 200 species of what we call endophytic fungi. Fungi that are living inside the plant, but they're not in the plant cells. They're just living benignly in the cellulose walls. And by and large, all plants are quite happy with this situation. But some of those fungi are what we call pathogenic. That means they can cause diseases. And if the plant is is damaged in ways that, for example, cell walls keep rupturing, then the fungi starts to get the upper hand on the, on the poor old plant. And working out, you know, with an animal or with a human being, we can show symptoms of a disease and doctors can say, right, we can treat this symptom with particular drugs or a treatment. In the case of plants, it seems the fungi that's going to kill them, they've been living with it all their life. But At some point, the the tables get turned and when the plant is suffering, then the fungi sort of gets the upper hand on it. So this whole world of endophytic plants is a fascinating area that we know very little about. But when we move plants and, and grow them in different areas, sometimes they lack a lot of these endophytic fungi. And in other cases where you go to the sort of centre of distribution, there are aphids moving around and they're the ones really that are transmitting the fungi from one plant to another because usually the seed germinates in a sterile spot. It won't have any. But as soon as you germinate on the ground, fungi in the soil invade your cellulose cell walls and you just live with them. And so there's this amazing partnership that By and large is uh, benign, it's uh, symbiosis, the two things live together happily. But you can see how with a changing climate, with stress for the plant, more sort of rupturing of cells, the fungi can occasionally get the upper hand. And, And this research project was really looking at the number of pathogenic fungi In plant cells, or or rather in their cellulose walls, and when they were able to actually attack the plant and the poor plant succumbs to them. So with rising temperatures, you can see how this little culture of fungi in the cell walls uh, could get the upper hand and appears to do so.
0: Well, it's fascinating stuff, Matthew. Thank you very much indeed. I suppose you will encourage people to come and visit the National Botanic Gardens in the coming weeks? Absolutely. We've got some great things. I mean, just now there's a a huge wild
1: species of lily from Australia called Dorianthes, and that is not quite in bloom, but it's just coming into bloom. It it only blooms every 10 years, and up in the curvilinear range, it has just got a lot of buds on it now. So I, I would hope in the next month or so, it's going to be quite a spectacular sight.
0: Matthew, thank you very much indeed.
1: Not at all, Derek. A pleasure.